Well, good morning and welcome to The Well here at STSA Church Online, where we are currently in the second week of a four-week series called What Does Love Require? And if you missed the first message last week, let me strongly encourage you to, to check that out. Either right now you can stop this video and go watch part one, or you can check it out after, after we're done here for today. But I want to encourage you to check it out because it's there that we set the tone and laid the foundation for everything we're going to talk about in this four-week series, and that basically is based on the following statement. I don't always know what to think or to believe, but if I'm honest, I almost always know what love requires me to do. You see, today we emphasize being right. We talk a lot about making sure that we have the right ideology and vote for the right candidate and that we um, know the truth, the true story, the backstory behind whatever conspiracy and we don't believe the lies that are out there, but we know the truth, okay? And we have the right, the, the right set of facts in front of us. We, we place great emphasis on being right and the problem is is that once we've declared ourselves as right and someone else is wrong, we justify any kind of bad behavior because simply they're wrong and we're right. So if we're right, there's no problem to demean another person and tell them how wrong that they are, no matter how disrespectful. There's no problem to criticize people publicly and online and curse people and disrespect people. Why? Because they're wrong and we're right. You see, in our minds, our wrong behavior is justified because of their wrong belief or wrong opinion. And the problem is, that's the exact opposite of how Jesus taught us to live. Jesus taught us to be kind, no matter how unkind the other person is. He taught us to be respectful, no matter how wrong the other person is. He taught us to treat everyone with respect, no matter what their viewpoint might be. Now, there was a group of people in the Bible who didn't get this memo of Jesus, who thought that being right could justify any kind of wrong behavior. And that was our friends, the Pharisees. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know right off the bat that you never want to be lumped in with these guys, the Pharisees. It's never a good thing when you find yourself in their same category. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people that treated you well and treated you with respect and valued you as long as you agreed with their opinion. So as long as you followed their rules, you supported their ideology, you went along with what they thought the way the, way the world should work. As long as you did those things, you were good. But if you saw the world differently, or you were raised a little bit differently, or you didn't follow their rules or subscribe to their way of, of viewing the world, aka Jesus, you were in trouble. You were in trouble. And if you were in the wrong, in their opinion, there's nothing they wouldn't do to you and they would justify it all in the name of being right. They could curse you. They could spit on you. They could kill you and crucify you on a cross as they did to Jesus. And unfortunately today, even though we don't hang people on crosses anymore, we actually do the exact same thing. But we do it online in a much more technologically savvy kind of a way. And that's basically the following, that if you see the world the way I see it, if you see the world according to my worldview, then you're good. If you see the, like, the world according to my ideology, you're good. But if you disagree and you see the world a different way and you have a different opinion or you were raised a slightly different way, then you're worthless to me. 
then you are a cancer to society. You have no value in my eyes and it doesn't matter how I treat you because you are wrong. And, and usually what, we're, what we see is that there's no in-between between these two extremes. Either you agree with me and you're right or you disagree with me and you're wrong and there's nothing in between. And I'll be honest, we don't just see this in the world. We see this in the church too, don't we? Like if there's one thing that this COVID pandemic has, has revealed to us is that we see a lot of the same stuff in the church. Like you have two polar extremes, okay? And, and you can see them online on social media. And there's the one extreme of, you know, the churches that, that closed and the churches that are doing online are, are, you know, quote, bending the knee or bowing the knee to Caesar and, you know, going with the ways of the world and we should have faith and they have no faith. And, and these are all heretics. and These people are not true believers. Then you have the opposite extreme is that if a church opens, you got people out there saying you are a menace to society and how dare you open your church and congregate people and give communion and pray the liturgy. And what we see is this differing opinions. And the problem is not the differing opinions. There's no problem to have differences of opinions. The problem is what we do with them. The problem is when we justify being unkind because of someone's wrong opinion or belittling or demeaning or disrespecting or talking bad, again, whether in person or online. And we do it all in the name of being right. I remind you of a quote that I showed you last week from a 7th century church father. His name is St. Maximus the Confessor. He says this, Whoever sees in himself the traces of hatred toward any man on account of any kind of sin, toward any man on account of any kind of sin is completely foreign to the love of God. For love toward God does not at all tolerate hatred for man. I want you to take that quote and I want you to apply it. It said that he who has any traces, any traces of hatred toward any man for any kind of sin. So any hatred toward any man for any kind of sin. That person is foreign to the love of God. So let's take that verse and apply it or take that quote and apply it to you and to me and see, are there any traces of hatred toward people who may disagree with your view on fill in the blank, your political view, your religious view, the way you believe that the people should parent or the way, you, the way you view the way you were parented. <sighs> Hatred toward any man for any sin is foreign to the love of God. And that sets the stage for our discussion here today. What we want to talk about is what do we do when we have these kinds of differences? How do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile living harmoniously, okay, as the gospel calls us, when we disagree so passionately with one another about fundamental things. Like, look at this verse from Psalm 13, verse 1, 133, verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Well, the question I want to ask here today, is that possible? And if so, how? How can I truly have unity with someone who was raised so differently than me? who sees the world so differently? How can I have unity with someone when I was raised to view people of a certain ethnicity or a certain color or a certain career or a certain political persuasion? Like my whole life, I've been trained to think that anyone who is fill-in-the-blank or anyone who goes to whatever fill-in-the-blank church or has whatever fill-in-the-blank job or has whatever fill-in-the-blank skin color, I've been trained to think that those people are just so different than me. And now how can I, you're telling me that we have to live united? How can this possibly be? 
That's what we want to talk about here today. The problem is that we confuse unity with uniformity. That's our problem. We think of unity and uniformity as the same. In other words, we think that in order for us to be one, we have to agree that I can't agree and have unity with someone who is, quote, wrong about whatever fill in the blank it may be. Well, here's how I look at it slightly different. And this is our key thought here for today. And that is this. That just because there are many wrong ways doesn't mean there's only one right way. Let that one sink in for a second. Just because there are many wrong ways doesn't mean there's only one right way. And I know right off the bat you're saying this is contrary to everything that we believe and, and, and you know, the finding the truth and the right way. And it, just stick with me. Give me a chance to explain. Let's start with marriage. Marriage. Anyone who's married wants to have a successful marriage. And if I were to ask you, how can you be successful when it comes to marriage? Well, let me ask the, the opposite. Are there wrong ways to be successful in marriage? Like, are, are there wrong ways to do this marriage thing that will lead you to failure? And the answer is, of course, yes, there are many wrong ways. Lying to my wife is a wrong way. Okay, cheating on my wife is a wrong way. Stealing from my wife is a wrong way. Like, you know, there are many wrong ways for getting her birthday or her anniversary or our anniversary, I should say. Okay, these are wrong ways to be successful at marriage. If you do them, you will fail. But does that mean that there's only one right way to be successful at marriage? Let me ask you, what is the right way to be successful at marriage? Okay, and you would say to love your spouse. Okay, love, but love means different things. I would say there are many ways to express love and many ways to be successful. And sometimes you have to express it in your words. Okay, you have to say, I love you. Sometimes you have to express it with gifts. Okay, buy flowers or buy candy, whatever it may be. You got to go out on a date with your wife. Okay, or, you're, or you got to uh, do something kind for your husband. So there, even though there are many wrong ways to be successful at marriage, there isn't just necessarily one right way. Like we can't say, yes, if you say I love you every single day, you'll be successful at marriage. That's the one right way. Or if you go on a date every week, that's the right way. Or if you buy flowers, that's the right way. Or if you make a sandwich after work or maybe a sandwich after church, whatever it may be, that's the right way. We can't say that. And in fact, stick with me here on this one, that sometimes what was the right way yesterday may not be the right way today. So if, for example, you say, I, you know, I get my wife a present on Valentine's Day. I get her flowers on Valentine's Day. I did it the first year of marriage and it was so successful. And then you tell her, look here, sweetie, every year, on you know February 13th, I set a calendar reminder, okay, or I programmed it automatically from Amazon to uh, order a set of flowers. So every year, February 14th, there's gonna come a set of flowers right here on the door. I'm the greatest husband on the history of the world. You will not be successful. That is, even though the flowers was the right way at one point in time, you can't say that there's only one right way to be successful at marriage. How about parenting? There are many wrong ways to raise children today. Okay, many wrong ways. But is there only one right way? So should I put my, is the right way to put my kids in sports or put them in music or put them in both or put them in neither? So anyone who puts them in sports is going to be successful or anyone who puts it, is there one right way? Is it sports or music? Should I push my kid um, to be good in math or in science? Should I um, encourage them to go to medical school or to law school? Like what is the right way to be successful? And the answer is, there's not one right way. There are many wrong ways, 
But they're not only one right way, and different people have different parenting styles, and that's okay. Not everyone has to parent their kid in the exact same way, okay? There are many wrong ways, but not just one right way. Go back to college. The, the goal of success in college, your goal is to pass your classes and to get a job and be successful in whatever career. But is there only, there's many wrong ways to do that, okay, party all night and never go to class and never study and never open a book. There are many wrong ways, but is there only one right way? I know people who did well and succeeded because they went to class and they took, they took notes, okay, and they're very diligent with the taking of notes. Me, myself, I wasn't much of a class person. I was more of a get the textbook and kind of cram it all in and just kind of show up for attendance in the class. There's different ways, okay? There's some, there's many wrong ways, but that doesn't mean there's only one right way to be successful. When we're young, okay, forgive me here, all the young people. When we're young, we view the world very simply. And I kind of want to say naively. We think that there's one right way. Once we discover the right way to view things, the right way to do something, the right way to reach some goal, we kind of tend to think that that's the only right way and anything else is wrong. And it's so obvious. How could anyone think otherwise? How could anyone think that this, like we discovered this is the right way to raise children. We discovered it. Okay, we have a, you know, one-year-old. We discovered this is the right way. How could anyone raise their kid any other way than this? Okay, and then you start to look at it in a judgmental way of like, my parents didn't do this. Oh, my parents were, must have been bad parents. They didn't really care. This parent doesn't care. You view the world simply. You think that because you found a way that it is the only way and everyone else must be a moron. Or politically, you come up with your idea of the right way to view the world politically and the right way to view this upcoming election or any election. So you say to yourself, of course, this is the right way. And anyone who thinks otherwise, what are they thinking? How foolish. Oh, they must not really care about our country. They must not really be Christian on the inside. Or they must have some ulterior motive. We view the world simply when we're young and we think that there's one right way and that's clearly the only right way. And then as we gain experience in life and as we get a little bit older, I know I'm not very old, but I'm old enough to know this. As we gain experience in life, we start to realize the foolishness and the arrogance of thinking that our way is the only way. Let me give you a verse here from Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes, who thinks he's got it all figured out? Do you see parents who think are wise in their own eyes, they think their way is the only way? Do you see people who think that anyone who votes this way must be a, a foolish person? Do you see even spiritually, let's talk about spiritually. Do you see people who spiritually think this is the path to grow close to God and this is obviously the right way and anyone who does things a different way must not have a, a true relationship with God. Like how could anyone be spiritual? And isn't it just so obvious? Isn't it just make clear sense? Like clearly there's one right way and everything else is the wrong way. And the one right way happens to coincide obviously with my way. Well, I say that just because there are many wrong ways doesn't mean there's only one right way. Now, with that said, okay, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that there is no such thing as absolute truth and believe whatever you want to believe. And like, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying everything is relative. I'm not saying it like that. Exact opposite. Okay. Anyone who knows me knows one of my favorite verses is fight to the death for truth. And the Lord God will fight for you from the book of Sirach. Fight to the death for truth. And we fight to death to the death for truth. And we never compromise when it comes to the truth. But what I'm saying is some things... Not all things, but some things. There's room for different opinions. 
There's room for some disagreement, some discussion. We need to be unity, but we don't need to be uniformity. Like, we need to all be one, but we don't need to all think the same or view the world the same. And the one who is wise knows the difference between where we need uniformity and where we don't. The one who's wise knows that there's some areas that it's okay to have disagreement and that doesn't take away from our unity. And I'll give you an easy example. Let's take it with the celebration of Christmas, everyone's favorite holiday, which will be here before you know it. Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ. There are different churches and different Christians out there who celebrate Christmas, the same event, on different days. We in the Orthodox Church, we celebrate on January 7th. Others celebrate on December 25th. And even within the Orthodox Church, there's some who celebrate it on December 25th. Does celebrating Christmas on a different day, December 25th versus January 7th, negate the validity of the celebration? Meaning like we're January 7th, so you celebrate on December 25th, so you must not be celebrating the birth of Jesus. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, okay? Jesus is born with us, so I don't know what you're celebrating. You're just celebrating like a, a happy, silent night or whatever it may be. Like that's what you're celebrating, but we're celebrating the birth of Christ because we're right and clearly you're wrong. The key for Christmas is not when we celebrate it. It's not when Jesus was born, but it's what we celebrate. It's we celebrate God becomes man, takes flesh for the salvation of all mankind. When isn't nearly as important as what. So as long as we're unified on the what we're celebrating, then the when doesn't really matter. Make Christmas in March for all I care. It doesn't really matter when it is. What matters is the what that we celebrate. Same when it comes to politics and viewing the world and our mindset towards society and culture outside. There are certain non-negotiables, no matter what political party or your your political persuasion is, there are certain non-negotiables, and that is this, is that people are more important than anything else. People are more important than rules. People are more important than political party or political affiliation or personal agendas. People, number one, everything else is a distant second. We must do what's best for people. Okay, that has to be our mindset. And we respect the dignity of every single person, whether black or white, whether rich or poor, whether law enforcement or not law enforcement or civilian, whether old, senior, or young, youth, or child, or infant, or not even born yet. We respect the dignity of every single person created in the image of God, and that is non-negotiable. No one can argue against that. But where we can differ is in how to best serve those people. So people over over political party, that's number one, people over agenda. But you think the best way to serve people is large government. Someone else thinks small government. That's okay, we can disagree there, but people number one. You think that healthcare should be private. Some think healthcare should be public. You think taxes should go higher. You think some say taxes should go lower. That's okay. Those things, to be honest, I don't really care about and I don't really understand. But one thing I know that's non-negotiable is people over everything else. That we care about people and serving people first above our own selfish or personal agendas or our own affiliations. That's a non-negotiable. But the rest, there's room to disagree and room to discuss. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you two examples. I want to discuss two examples of what unity without uniformity looks like in its purest sense. Okay, I'm going to give two examples. One, the second one will be a little easier to relate to than the first, but the first is necessary to set the stage for the second. Okay, and the two examples are 
the Holy Trinity, and two, the Holy Church. Okay, the Holy Trinity and the Holy Church. Let's start with the Holy Trinity. God himself, did you know, God himself is a picture of unity without uniformity. God is a picture of unity and diversity existing in one. Because our God is one, but he is also three. One God, guess what we say in the creed, we don't believe in three gods, that's pantheism, we don't believe in three gods, we believe in one God, we believe in one God, okay, and we say it over and over. But that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is not uniform with the Son, who is not uniform with the Holy Spirit, but they are united together perfectly in one Godhead. Each person is not the same as the other. Each person has their own divine attributes or characteristics. Like, for example, we say it in the Creed. The Father, He is the Pantocrator. He is the maker of all things seen and unseen. We only say that about the Father. The Son, He is the image of the Father. And He is begotten of the Father before all ages. He is light of light, true God of true God. The Holy Spirit, whole different set of characteristics and attributes for Him. We say He is the life giver, okay, or the giver of life. And He doesn't, He's not begotten of the Father. He proceeds from the Father. So you see how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit they are not the same, but they are one. And that's another thing we say during our, our, our liturgical services. One is the Holy Father. One is the Holy Son. One is the Holy Spirit. Because even though they're three, they're still one. The oneness of God does not remove the unique personhood of each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the unique personhood doesn't negate the oneness. The two are coexisting. And we are made in the image of that unified, but not uniform, God. Metropolitan Callistus Ware, who's written several books, says it this way. He says, the church is the image of God, the Holy Trinity. It reveals to us the mystery of unity and diversity. Of unity and diversity. Each person bears individual autonomy, but working together in unity of love. Said another way, what Metropolitan Callistus Ware is saying, is that just because there are many wrong ways doesn't mean there's only one right way, and it kind of, sort of, in a weird, non-heretical kind of a way, kind of applies to God. There are many wrong ways to be God, but that doesn't mean there's only one right way. Father can be God. Son can be God. Spirit can be God. They are God. Each one is God. Unity without uniformity. We see it in the Holy Trinity. And the reason why that example is important to begin with, okay, I realize it's not the most relatable force, but it sets the model for what we'll talk about next, which is the example that may be a little bit easier to relate to, which is not just unity of the Holy Trinity, but now unity of the Holy Church, which is the body of Christ on earth. Now, before I speak about the church, I realize that what I, the picture I'm about to paint of the church right here, of unity without uniformity, I realize full well that it is a very theoretical, and oftentimes far cry from the reality that we see in front of us. And I get that. But as the church is full of human beings and each human being, okay, comes with his flaws and comes with his mistakes, like it's easy to sit on our couch and throw stones and say, yeah, the church is this and the church isn't that and the church is that. That's easy to do. Okay, and you wouldn't be wrong to do that, but I would say like what Jesus said in John chapter 8 when he said simply, he was without sin, you cast the first stone. So to the one who is flawless, then you can sit there and pick apart, the, pick apart the flaws of the church when you see something inside the church. But the truth of the matter is, is the church 
even though it's filled with flawed people, doesn't mean that the church is flawed or that the church is corrupt or anything like that. The church is made up of people. And anytime you have people, you have issues. And what we need to learn how to do in the church is to expect issues in the church, but never accept those issues. Okay? Say that again. We expect flaws and we expect issues because it's human beings and it's human people, but we never accept it. We're always striving for perfection and trying to reach that high bar that God set. Okay? So with that said, let's talk about the church because the church is the body of Christ. And earlier I said about how God himself, unity about uniformity. Well, if we are his body, then we what must what is true of him must also be true of us. The same way he is unity without uniformity, we too must be unity without uniformity. And I'll tell you what, the people who started this thing, the people at the very beginning of the church, they got this one right. They didn't always get it right and they made their mistakes for sure, but as a whole, overall, they got this right because this is so important, so important, so important. There was a time when the world was so divided, way more divided than it is today. Like we look at the world and say it's never been more divided, way more divided than it was openly divided. There was no such thing as, as whether it's wrong to, 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 to have prejudice or bias. It was openly divided by social class, divided by race, race, divided by ethnicity, divided by language, divided by spiritual background. Like everything was lines. Divided by gender, divided by political affiliation. And in the midst of all that division, all that division, it was the church. Yes, you heard me say it correctly. It was the church that led the way in terms of unity without uniformity, in terms of allowing for diversity, but still being unified around the person of Christ. Because the church was the first one that said, I don't care about your gender. I don't care about your social class. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care what your ideology is. I don't care where you came from. You're a person. You're made in the image of God, and therefore you have intrinsic value. Doesn't matter what society values you. You have intrinsic value as a child of God, no matter how worthless you are to society. Even if you're sick, even if you're handicapped, even if you're just newborn, even if you're inside the womb and haven't been born yet, you have intrinsic value and no one has the right to take that away. Don't tell me skin color. Don't tell me anything like that. No one has the right to take away the intrinsic value of every person, even if they believe the wrong thing. Even if they grew up speaking the wrong language, even if they have the wrong view on who God is or on how the world should work, every single person had intrinsic value. And again, we think the world today is divided in the world. I'm telling you, the people in the early church who figured this thing out and who wrote about it and who modeled it, they grew up, like think how they grew up. They grew up being taught by their leaders about how you have Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles openly you said about them they're worse than everybody else you were allowed to call them dogs in the street and they couldn't do anything you're allowed to spit on them you you would never eat with them you would never consider them even you wouldn't even consider them as second class citizens they were much 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 worse and not only they would grew up this way but they grew up this way with the seeming seeming is the key word there seemingly with the approval and at the command of god they treated them this way and they saw the world this way. Again, seemingly, not, not the reality. You'll see that okay, in the Old Testament that, that God was clear that his house will be a house of all nations. But from their perspective, God approved it and in fact, God commanded it. Yet somehow, with that as the backdrop, was that as the way they were raised, the church led the way in the world, 
led the way in terms of unity without uniformity. The church was the most unified place, even though it was the most diverse place that existed on planet Earth. And you don't need to look very far to see this. Just look at the leaders of the church. Look at the apostles. Look at the 12 guys who Jesus said, these are the guys, okay? These are the 12 guys who are going to sit on 12 seats, okay, on 12 thrones and judge the world. These are the guys that I'm entrusting with my mission, okay? We, unfortunately, we talk a lot about being an apostolic church, but we don't know too much about the apostles themselves. Like, we don't look look too much into their lives. Yeah, I mean, we know some of the big things, like, you know, Peter was like, you know, walk on water kind of a guy and, you know, denied Christ. We know John was like the speak about yourself in the third person guy, like the one who Jesus loved, the one who Jesus loved, like a little bit full of himself, it seems like, but okay, maybe that was the way they wrote back then. We know there was a guy named Matthias who was just like, obviously like the rebound, okay, after things didn't work out with Judas, just kind of like, uh, okay, we'll take you. But we don't know too much about these guys, but I'm telling you, you might be surprised to discover that these 12 guys were the most diverse group of people on the planet, yet they were united in one mind and one heart and one accord despite their diversity. You had some within the 12 who were from an elite social class coming from like a, a, a family of a lawyer. And then you had some who were very low spiritual, low social class, fishermen, okay? And then even within the fishermen, you had different ranks. You had like James and John who were fishermen, but they owned a boat. So they were clearly more successful and richer fishermen. Then you had Peter and Andrew who didn't have a boat and they were just kind of standing by the shore. Okay, so they were even a lower class than them. You had certain people who were anti-government and certain people who were very pro-government. You had Simon the Zealot. Zealot means he would belong to a political party which wanted to overthrow the Roman government. So he was like the rebels, okay, you know, in the secret meetings who wanted to overthrow. So he was anti-government. Then you had someone like Levi or Matthew who was a tax collector, who was a sellout to the government. You couldn't put two more opposite people in the room than these two guys. You had some who were early adopters, okay, and believed right away as soon as Jesus said something. Then you had others who were like, no, we need to take our time, and we're a little skeptical and had to evaluate this thing. My point is, you had people from every single end of the spectrum, whether it's socially or, or economically or, 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 or spiritually, but they were united together, united together in Christ. And actually, if you want to go even further, the group gets even more diverse if you go past the 12. Like expand it to all the early followers. Look in the book of Acts, okay? And all the early followers. You had, for example, a guy like Nicodemus. Okay, Nicodemus was the one who, um, you know, when Christ was buried, it was Joseph and Nicodemus who took the body of Christ. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the guys that Jesus stood in front of and condemned him to death. And then all of a sudden, one of them is now joining the party, the Christian party, where we saw you guys kill our master for no reason, and now you want to join the party. They accepted him. They welcomed him in. You had the centurion, okay? You know, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a centurion, a Roman soldier, who pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And he, the tradition tells us, became a believer as well. His name is Longinus. And he, they saw him pierce Jesus with a spear. They saw him kill their, their Lord on a cross. And he welcomed, they welcomed him in. And they said, they didn't say, no, you're different than us. Or how could you? Or we can't accept you. Or you're so dumb. Or you're so bad. Or how? They didn't say any of that stuff. You had Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord cast out seven evil spirits. And here's Mary Magdalene, 
Okay, here you have this, this, this group of disciples. Again, like I said, you have the zealot and then you have the tax collector. You have the rich and you have the poor. You have all this different cast of characters and all of a sudden Jesus says, you know who we're going to add? We're gonna, I got a great idea. Let's bring Mary Magdalene and make her one of us. And she becomes like the first witness to the resurrection. And you could just imagine all the other disciples thinking to themselves like, oh my goodness, like Jesus, we are already weird enough. Our group is so weird as it is. We don't need to add the demon possessed lady with the seven evil spirits, but Jesus added her. And you know what? You look at that ragtag group, not just the disciples, but the early church, and they were from all different backgrounds. They were from all different political persuasions. They were from all different classes. But they were unity, even though not uniformity. Look what the book of Acts says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all with one accord in one place. And what I love about the book of Acts, it tells us they weren't just together because they like, okay, it was prayer meeting time and like, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come. So I guess we have to see Peter again and got to, you know, stand next to John or whatever. It, it wasn't just like that. It wasn't like a forced because of like this special day of Pentecost. Look now in verse 47 in the same chapter. It says, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. So they didn't just hang out together in church once a week. It says they were daily together with one accord. They were daily together and they broke bread from house to house. They hung out with each other. They spent time together. They lived simple lives. And they had gladness and they had favor with one another. The point here is they were so different, so different, yet somehow, even though they weren't uniform, they were united in Christ. And that's the model. That's the model that we're called to follow. The same way that God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is three in one and one in three. He's unity without uniformity. Same way the church was from the beginning and the church is called to be throughout all generations. Look at this quote from an author, John MacArthur. He says this. He says, they, meaning the apostles in the early church, were a microcosm. They were a microcosm of the church they would begin, each unique, but each having his own special place and work. In other words, just because there are many wrong ways to be a Christian and wrong ways to be a leader of the church doesn't mean that there's only one right way. And we, in our Orthodox Church, we have a rich history. And we see it every time we read the Synexarium, the lives of the saints. We have a rich history of a diversity of saints who have gone before us, who have shown us that there isn't just one right way to do this Christianity thing. What we've seen is there are some saints who have found God and found holiness and found righteousness through a life in the desert, going out into a far, far, far away place and living you know, in, in the caves and just eating you know, locusts and wild honey and things like that. And we've seen other ones who have lived in cities okay, and come from rich families, but have given themselves for their own family to raise their family and to be honorable in whatever service God called them to. We've seen some as clergy, some as laymen, some from uh, uh, um, Christian backgrounds, okay, families who raised them the right way, some from pagan backgrounds. My point here is there isn't just one way to do this Christianity thing right. And in fact, every time we pray the divine liturgy, every time we pray, we say the phrase that he, meaning Christ, taught us the ways of salvation. He taught us the ways of salvation. And we did an entire series about this one phrase several years back. And we talked about how there is only one way to God, only one way to the Father, that is through Christ. But there are many ways to the one way. And St. Peter found him through one way. And Andrew found him a different way. And St. Paul found him one way. And St. John found him another way. And Mary Magdalene found him another way. And Longinus the Centurion found him another way. And you and I we may find him different ways because even though there's only one way, there are many ways to that one way. Or, said another way, 
is that even though there are many wrong ways, doesn't mean there's only one right way. Look what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, a passage that I think it, it, it explains this principle so beautifully. He says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We, though many, are one bread and one body. And if you think about a piece of bread, you got grains coming from over here and some from over there and some that are big and some are small, but it all comes together and it forms one unity, one unified body of Christ, one bread, even though many pieces come together to make it. And that's exactly the picture of the church. At least it should be. The picture of many people, different backgrounds, different ways of viewing the world, different ways of viewing politics, different upbringings, different skin colors, different ages, different everything, but a unified, unified together in the faith in the risen Christ and in the hope that he brings to this world. That was the early church. Unity without uniformity. Modeled after God himself, who is unity without uniformity. And now, it's our turn. It's me and you. It's time for us to carry the torch. And I would say, and I think you'd probably agree with me, the world needs it now more than ever. But listen carefully. If we, the church, if we say the world is so in need of unity, and the world is so in need of this idea of, uh, of unity and diversity, if we, the church, are not going to be the ones to lead the way, then who is? Like if we, the church, not be the ones who stand at the forefront and say, you know what, intrinsic value of every person, every person has value, even if they disagree with me, even if they disagree with me, intrinsic value, every person deserves to be respected, deserves to be treated with kindness, deserves to be loved, deserves to be heard, even if I don't agree with them, even if we think they're wrong. Isn't that what Christ did for us? Didn't, did Christ wait for us to be right before he listened to us and loved us and heard our prayer? <sighs> Christ didn't. Christ stepped out of his comfort zone. The Father sent his only begotten Son into the world, not because the world was right, but because the world needed a Savior. And I would say that if we are going to be Christ to this world, then we got to do what he did for us. We got to do what the early church did for the rest of the world. He stepped out of his comfort zone. And that's what it takes. Unity without uniformity is not easy. Okay, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. It will take being a little uncomfortable. It'll take going out of our comfort zone a little bit. But that's what Christ did for us. And that's what the early church did for one another. And that's now what we are called to do for the rest of this world. Said another way, I'd say it this way. We don't need to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. We don't need to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. As the church, the body of Christ, we have a high, high, high calling. And that high calling comes with a great honor and a great reward, but it also comes with a great level of discomfort and willingness to go outside of our comfort zone. And that comes when we accept one another, even though we're not all the same. Because as I said in the beginning, and I'll say it every week in this series, while I may not always know what to believe, and I may not always know what to think. If I'm honest, and if you're honest, we almost always know what love requires us to do. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you've shown us, not because we were right, or because we deserved it, but Lord, because you are good, 
and because you treat us all with respect. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that same mindset, to accept one another and to respect one another, even when we disagree, even when someone's opinion is the exact opposite of mine. Lord, help me and help all of us to, to stop judging one another and disrespecting one another and posting stuff online about one another and help us to truly be your body and to truly love one another and accept one another and to find unity even though we don't have uniformity. We pray these things in the name of your Son with the prayers of all of your saints here as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. I hope you'll be back next week. Next week's message you don't want to miss. The title is Talking Politics. That's right. We're going there. Okay, we're talking about politics next week, so I really hope you'll join me as we continue this series, What Does Love Require? Have a great rest of the day and rest of the week, everyone.